Hey, welcome to the Kelly Cotrera podcast. It's an exciting day today. The Toronto Raptors will defend their NBA title this afternoon against the Brooklyn Nets. And we'll be joined by Rick Zamprin for some playoff pregame chat. And remember that TTC derailment that shut down the morning rush hour in January? Ben Spur from the Toronto Star joins the show with his exclusive on how the TTC knew about the potential problem years prior to the derailment and did nothing about it. But first... The TDSB's back-to-school plan to shrink classes, we were talking about it last week. It seemed like it was a good idea, uh, but it would cut the class day short by 45 minutes. And so the province has put the kibosh on that and said to the TDSB, yeah, you got to come up with a different plan. Now, we're three weeks out from the start of the school year, so that unnerving to say the least. Alexander Brown is the chair of the TDSB. He joins the show now. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Good morning. So did you anticipate the province coming back to you after you put together this this plan where, you know, the day would be shortened by 45 minutes to enable teachers to plan for prep, but the class sizes in elementary schools would be uh, shrunk down to 15 or 20, something more manageable for physical distancing. Did you anticipate they'd come back and say, oh, that doesn't work for us? Um, no, I, I would say that we didn't anticipate that. At least I didn't. Um to be quite honest, this plan was ready uh, in mid-July. Uh, we had these plans ready, and at that time, the ministry was supposed to look at all school board plans and approve them or not. But then soon after that, they came forward and said, here's what we want you to do. You're going to do it this way. So they didn't really look at those plans. We had them. Oh. So you handed in your homework early for the assignment, anticipating yeah. what they wanted, and then they said, well, you know what, we're going to change, the, you know, we're gonna, we're going to tell you what to do. And then we'll see what you come up with. So they didn't even refer to your plans. When you made these plans and they were ready in July, um, who helped come up with the plan? Well, this was our staff. This is TDSB staff came up. The, the, ministry, the, the ministry gave a direction to all school boards, uh, I think, in June, late June, early July, saying you need to come up with three, three models. One full-time return, one an adapted day where you have half and half type thing, and then fully remote. To, to prepare us for any, any um, uh, scenario that might, you know, pop up in September because we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. It's an unknown. And, so, so we were prepared. Yeah, the, the TDSB apparently came up with two pla- plans if you're going back full time, one of which is the one I'm talking about that was rejected. So outline what you came up with and the cost of each, just to refresh our memories here. Um, okay, so for elementary classes, we came up with basically the same plan for option A and B, where we wanted to focus on ensuring that the class sizes were smaller. So JK to 3 would have had 15 students in each class with the same teacher every day. And then um, 4 to 8, grade 4 to 8 would have been uh, 20 students. So we increased that because the kids at that age are a little bit more uh, capable of managing themselves as well. Um, that cost, the cost for that, and that includes taking all of our librarians, all of our non-timetabled um, um, teachers, and putting them back in the class as well. $20 million is what we came up with that. The same, and that was with the timing, as you said, um, 45 minutes, or 48 minutes less per day for the prep at the end of the day. The other model was the same model, except that it was 300 minutes, which the ministry said, you must do that now. And so we do have that plan. But the price tag for that is $190 million. So even though they've given us 
you know, they said, we've opened up the taps, the, re- the financial taps, by le- allowing you to access your um, reserve fund. We would only have access to about $30 million, plus the $6.2 million that they've allocated to our board uh, from their staffing uh, allotment of $30 million that they're doing province-wide. So the difference is about $170 million. We don't have that money. Right. And the the idea to come up with uh, the proposed plan of 15 students per day, I understand that Toronto Public Health had a look at your plan a few weeks ago, and they said that, you know, back before July, they said your elementary class sizes may be a bit big. So so that's the reason why you went with the uh, 15 students per class, correct? That's right. And actually, uh, before we had handed, I mean, we never got a chance to hand these into the ministry for approval. They came back, the ministry came back and said, no, we want you to do the full-size classes now for mm-hmm. elementary and you can work on lowering those as you see fit, if that means going to the most uh, the areas of the city where COVID-19 is having the greatest impact, go there first. Um, but um, again, Toronto Public Health came out and said, we wouldn't be able to support that. Why? Because it's not a healthy, it's not a safe environment. They're looking at, they're saying quite clearly for social distancing in the classroom and to ensure that uh, there's maximum safety, you'd need smaller class sizes. And they were very supportive of our plan of 15 and 20. So Toronto Public Health said it doesn't matter if you're in a key high-risk area, any area could be high-risk. So let's just make sure all of the, across the board, Toronto District School Board has the same numbers in their classrooms. As a baseline. And then, of okay. course, in areas of the city where there are uh, much higher cases, we would, we, we would look at allocating even more resources there, of course. We're talking with Alexander Brown, he's the chair of the TDSB, about the fact that the ministry has rejected the plan that they introduced last week. And so it's back to the table you go. Where's the disconnect between the school board and the province when it comes to the school year, specifically? (laughs) Um, uh, If I were the ministry, I might be able to answer that. Um, I can tell you from the Toronto District School Board side, um, you know, People have been saying, well, why aren't they all at the table together, the unions, the school boards in the province? And from, from what I've heard from our director and our staff, they've had pretty consistent meetings throughout the summer with the ministry. And I know that we've had meetings with our, with our unions and our teachers because there's, there's a real fear there of going back into classrooms that are too large uh, because you don't know what you're going to take home to your family. And I get this. Um, but this would be, all the protocols would be in place to ensure that the smaller class sizes could provide the maximum safety in our classes. I mean, that's what we do, right? We take care of kids, and we've got to take care of our teachers and anybody who enters those buildings. The unions were involved in planning, two of the proposal scenarios that we talked about, so they are clearly engaged. Now, the minister is calling on teachers' unions to be more flexible during the pandemic. Clearly, you're in conversation with the unions. What's your sense of not only their flexibility, but ability to be reasonable, as the government put it, during the pandemic and adjust. Yeah, well, I think everybody is trying to be reasonable. Um, I mean, for for greater clarity on that, I would suggest you speak directly to the unions, because uh, my understanding is that they sat down with us and they they were um, they approved of our plans, the 15 and 20. I mean, there's always little things you have to work out, right? But we were willing to move forward with those plans, and we had our unions saying, "Okay, let's do it." Um, but then again, you come back and the ministry said, uh, no, you have to do it this way now. So I, I, I you know, it's causing a lot of um, confusion mm-hmm. uh, and that leads to uh, anger and frustration at what's going on. And this is from, you know, this is coming from the parents. This is what I'm hearing clearly from parents. 
And I know that they do say, you know, for the most part, keep the class sizes smaller. We want to be able to we want it to be confident that when we send our kids back to you, you're taking care of them. Now, clearly, Alexander, you were hearing from parents. Were you hearing from parents that were saying, you know, that 48 minutes at the end of the day doesn't work for me because, I, you know, I work. So I have no care for my kids if, if the teachers want to end the class 48 uh, minutes ahead of time um, yeah. uh, so that they can prep. Were you hearing that as well? I, I personally didn't hear very much. Of, like, I, I know that there are parents out there that have expressed that, but that's not the majority by far. Um, and I, we do get that. And again, as I said, we are being as flexible as we can. We're listening to those voices and we will do what we can. If the ministry wants us to do 300 minutes, I think we'll go forward with the 300 minutes. But the problem is, how do we make it work? Because we're going to, uh, if we're focusing on the smaller class sizes, we need a lot more money for that. We're still going to need a lot of space. So regardless of what we do, the 20 million or the 190 million with the 300 minutes, we got to find space in other places, maybe in community centers, maybe in uh, whatever facility the city can help us find, simply because uh, we won't have enough space in some of our schools to accommodate those smaller class sizes either. So what about outdoor classes? Are you, are you uh, at, uh, entertaining that idea as well in the meantime? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not sure of what the exact plan is, and I think the outdoor classroom situation is something that each and every school at the local level will also be working with their principals and teachers to figure out because there are many schools with outdoor classroom facilities. I just want to point out as well that we do have outdoor learning centers and one of the things that we had to do last year because of budget cuts uh, was close one of them. So, you know, when we need it most. Right. And where was that? It's not. Uh, actually, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's probably still there if it's outdoors. Oh, it's there. At least, yeah. the, at least the venue's there, so you could start that up again. So there's a meeting scheduled for tomorrow for the board to discuss different options for back-to-school models. How confident are you that you're going to come up with a plan that works? Aren't you running out of time? I mean, school starts in three weeks, September 8th, and what if you don't come up with a plan? Well, I'm confident that we already have a plan. The board does. We're going to obviously rework it, working with the ministry again. I mean, we've been flexible and we've been willing to do this. But I think tomorrow has to be our last day for the discussions on this. The board will make the decisions on any finances that we need. As long as the plan doesn't change again, we can move forward with it. Will we be able to open schools? That is still something that I need to hear. And I don't know. So will you be following BC's lead? Sorry? Will you be following BC's lead if you don't reach a decision within the end of the week here? Because uh, you said tomorrow's an important day. I mean, they want to delay school starting. It, could we see something like that within the Toronto District School Board? I wouldn't rule that out, but I can't say. Alexander, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll be talking again within the uh, coming days. Within a few hours, perhaps, maybe. <laughs> It's true. It is true. Thank thank you so much. If you have any other news, you know where to get us. All right. That is Alexander Brown from the Toronto District School Board. He is the chair, and they are back to the drawing board. Wow. Are we taking this right to the wire or what? All right. Let's get super local with a big story. It's an exclusive for the Toronto Star from Ben Spur, who's their transportation reporter. The TTC was warned about a broken switch years before the January subway derailment, but did nothing according to internal 
emails. Here to talk about it, Ben Spur. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on, as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. So refresh our memory on the incident on, on January 22nd. Yeah, if you uh, were caught up in it, you, you might remember. Uh, it was uh, in, in the early morning of a uh, uh, morning in January. Uh, basically, a, a train swept, uh, slipped off the tracks. Um, as it was entering service uh, at the TTC's keel yard, and it ended up blocking the track. So basically, the uh, TTC had to shut down a whole portion of uh, Line 2 right before rush hour. And so um, people basically uh, on the, who were already kind of on their way in their commutes um, ended up waiting for shuttle buses, for instance, on the side of the road. The crowds uh, grew so large that the police actually had to shut down uh, a portion of Bloor Street. So it was a pretty disruptive day. Right. And this was all over what we know is a uh, missing switch. It's it's a kick plate. We had heard about this because the TT, they came forward and said, yeah, this is what happened. This is this was the problem. But you've uncovered more information. Right. But let's go back to before I get to the information you uncovered. Let's talk about what a kick plate is and, and why it was so important. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not an engineer, but my understanding, I'll try to do my best here, but my understanding is basically that it, it's a its a piece of metal with a plate that keeps the, the rails of the train from um, from going off the rails. Essentially, it's sort of a, a guard, um, and it, it's uh, applied in certain parts of the rail network on switches, on certain curves, um, all kind of trouble spots, and it's supposed to keep the, the rail, um, kind of the, the wheel flush with the rail. Makes me think we need a kick plate for this show sometimes, but that's another story. Sure. Um, so you did some digging because the TTC were forthcoming. They said, well, this is the problem. We The, the kick plate somehow it, 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 there was a problem with it or it wasn't there. You've obtained some internal emails that actually show that they they knew about this two years before the derailment, but it wasn't fixed. Can you get specific with I know you've got to protect your source, um, but get specific with what you learned. Yeah, so the emails show that back in 2017, um, there was a TTC employee whose job title is a roadmaster, and they go around doing things like inspecting track. And back in 2017, right before the keel yard started to be used very heavily for for day-to-day service, um, this uh, roadmaster noticed uh, that uh, this kick plate was missing. And there's also other problems uh, that that he noticed with the switch. It wasn't properly um, fastened to the track bed, for instance, so it was just in a pretty bad condition. uh, and he uh, he alerted his superiors at the time. He said, hey, we have to fix this. Um, they did some work uh, to, to uh, make the track a little bit uh, more safe, but they never um, installed this kick plate. And then two and a half years later, this derailment happened. I have uh, your article in the Toronto Star, which is a great read. It's very specific um, in front of me right now. So I'm going to read um, what uh, this, it, what was he called? The Roadmaster? Roadmaster yeah. had to say. He said the switch is not in a condition that is safe. And he told his superiors this in an email. And he said that, please attend to this immediately tonight as we cannot leave the switch in this condition. We will have to locate and install missing kick plate at a later date, he wrote. And then a senior manager wrote back the same day. Uh, the switch will be used every morning and every night by four trains starting this weekend. I don't know why the switch was left by this, but I want crew to attend tonight and replace the the braces. And uh, uh, the manager asked employees to double check whether there was a kick plate available and said if there was, I'd like that installed over the weekend as well. Um, so it sounds like two people were doing their jobs. So where's the disconnect, according to yeah. your source? Like what went wrong? 
Where did it go off the rails, literally? Yeah, it's not quite clear because it it is obviously clear from these emails that that, uh, people who are responsible for this yard uh, knew that this part was missing. Uh, When I asked the TTC about this, they said, basically, we don't know. We don't know why. We knew this work had to happen, but somehow it didn't happen. The TTC said that a lot of people who were involved with the work uh, are no longer at the TTC, and so they couldn't do a, a full investigation to determine what exactly happened. One, one thing that uh, is a possible explanation is that these kick plates, um, it, it's not a kind of one size fits all um, kind of part. You have to do some, uh, you know, come machining and, and design to actually fit it into a specific part of the network. And so it's, it, it, it kind of, you can reasonably assume that um, they knew that this part had to be put in place, didn't have one that fit at the moment, intended at some point to, to get a part uh, shaped in the right way to, to get it in there, but then just never did. That is so unbelievable. Uh, You know, the TTC told you that a more thorough review is hampered by the fact that several employees with knowledge of the issue no longer work at the TTC. Ben, you just mentioned that. Presumably, they're still collecting some kind of income if they're retired. And even if they were let go, it's never been easier to find people. We chase people every day for this show and we get them on. It's amazing to me that we actually find people. But it's pretty easy to find people now. That is, does that seem like a very weak excuse? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's not. It's just a matter, I imagine, of finding the people, but but getting them to to sit down for a detailed, uh, you know, interview as to what happened. And when you're not someone's employer, um, getting them to sit down and admit that they made a made a mistake is probably pretty difficult. Um, but um, yeah, I think you know, I, I think it's fair to say that we'd all like some more info from the TTC as to what happened here. Just kind of saying that we don't know and the people responsible aren't here anymore. Obviously, is not particularly satisfying for people who were caught up in this or who are worried about uh, something like this happening again in the future. Ben, your source at the TTC says, quote, it was just negligence on the part of some of these people at the TTC that caused this. Do you think that we'll see firings? And should we? Well, Because the cost to the city is more than just inconvenience, Ben. Yes, of course. Yeah, obviously the lost productivity in, uh, from incidents like this and, and you know, the train derailment, it could have been, been dangerous. Luckily, no one was yeah. on the train and no one was hurt. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I think it, what's interesting is that there actually has been a, a fair amount of, of turnover at the TTC, my understanding is, over the last little while when Andy Byford left uh, as is kind of um, typical in, in institutions like this. I think a lot of people who were kind of uh, attached to the, to the Byford regime also were kind of shocked out. Um, and I have heard some um, kind of alarm within the TTC that some kind of qualified people um, aren't there anymore and, and that that actually could sort of lead to some more problems like this. So um, yeah, wow. I'm not sure if we'll see more people getting dismissed, but I think that there are some concerns about, um, you know, the, the ability and, and kind of institutional knowledge of the people uh, that are there right now. Well, we'll trust you to continue on this story, Ben, because you just do such a stellar job reporting on on these stories, a transportation reporter for the Toronto Star. It's always a pleasure to have you on, Ben. Uh, that's very kind. Thank you very much. Cheers. That's Ben Spur from the Toronto Star. You can read his exclusive report on this in the Star today. There's a new NBA champion, and it's a team from Toronto, Canada. We the North are now we the champions. The Raptors, the 2019 NBA champs.
Yep, and the Raptors begin their defense of their NBA title this afternoon against the Brooklyn Nets. Tip-off in the basketball bubble at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Rick Zamperin is our guest. He is our uh, sports director from Sister Station 900 CHML in Hamilton. Welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Rick. Kelly, great to be here, and I can hear that highlight uh, for as long as I live. Fantastic memories. Now, do you get, because I played that earlier on, and I said um, to both Dave and Caroline, who were working on the show with me today, I got goosebumps when I heard it. Do you get a visceral reaction to that as well? I Yeah, I, I did just now, and I usually do with those kind of, because you just hearken back to where you were, the feelings that you were feeling at the time, you know, the, the, the heaviness of the moment, uh, you know, the importance of what it means to basketball in this nation, to the team, to just being a fan of the team. So, yeah, you get all those feels. So this is game one in the best of seven series. They're going to be playing against the Brooklyn Nets. I hear Brooklyn's got a bunch of injured players. How does Brooklyn look? How does that team look up against the uh, the NBA champs, the Raptors? Well, there's no doubt about it. Brooklyn is the big underdog in this series. Uh, the the Raps are defending champs. I know there's there's no Kawhi Leonard on the on the floor anymore for Toronto, but this team has had an even better record without him this year, which is really hard to believe. But they've amounted to the second best winning percentage in team history. The Raps are seven and one in the bubble, so they're red hot. They're the first team since 1973-74 to have five players average 15 points per game. Uh, They're just a deep team, a well-coached team, now with a championship pedigree. So Brooklyn has a very uphill battle uh, against the Raps. But, you know, Brooklyn has some talent. They're a feisty team. They're 5-3 and in the bubble, so they're playing some good ball. Uh, Chris LeVert, or Karis LeVert, is, you know, one of the guys that they're counting upon to, you know, step up in this playoff series. Uh, Joe Harris is a good three-point guy. Jared Allen is a big guy down low who can put the bucket in the net. But, you know, Brooklyn is really missing their key players. Kyrie Irving not playing because of an knee injury. Kevin Durant not playing. We all know that he tried to play in last year's finals uh, with Golden State, and he, you know, injured uh, his uh, his knee and his ankle. DeAndre Jordan and Spencer Dinwiddie, two guys who contracted COVID-19 and then opted out uh, for Brooklyn. So they're really, they're, their top four guys are not even playing. So, the Raptors should have, an, uh, I'm not going to say an easy time, but maybe an easier time against this Brooklyn team than they would have against maybe some of the other teams. And how are the Raptors looking? The Raptors look fantastic. You know, the word is deep. They can beat you a number of different ways. They have, they don't have that superstar guy. They don't have the Kawhi Leonard. They don't have a LeBron James. They don't have, you know, a, a Giannis Antetokounmpo. But they have such a deep roster where if one guy is not having a great game, the other four or maybe a couple off the bench are going to pick up the slack. And, you know, whether it's Kyle Lowry or, or Marc Gasol or Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, Norm Powell, Serge Ibaka, the list goes on and on and on, uh, where, as I said, if, if, if there's a player having a bad night, this team can move the ball around, score it well, but most importantly, they can defend. They're one of the best defensive teams in the NBA, and that, uh, you know, obviously is their meat and potatoes, but Nick Nurse can also push all the right buttons as well. So this team is a well-oiled machine and a great team. And Marcus Gasol made a great point. You know, basketball is not tennis, uh, where it's a singular individual. And even in, you know, uh, pairs tennis, obviously there's a bit of a team aspect. But with basketball, you need everyone on the floor and everyone on that bench to be a, co- a cohesive unit. And the Raptors have it.
the the Clippers have Kawhi now. They're not doing so well in comparison to the Raptors. So that cohesive nature that you're talking about, that ability for team members to support each other on the Raptors, who's that response? Who's responsible for that? Is it Kawhi and how he kind of uh, showed the team how to work together? Is it Nick Nurse? Is it was it the willingness of the Raptors to all come together and, and realize, okay, we got our superstar. We don't have to be the superstars. We're going to be the supports, and then realize when they they surprised themselves. I think in the playoffs that it wasn't just about Kawhi they were it just as as pivotal to the winning of that of uh that trophy uh is it did it instill a kind of a confidence that's just not going away yeah I think having Kawhi last year really instilled that kind of championship medal and this is what it takes to be you know the the elite of the elite that you know the top dog in the, in the NBA which is not an easy feat to do um but when he left, I think we all got the sense, even as fans, to say, you know, this team can't be as good uh, without Kawhi, but they're even better because I think they themselves kind of looked in the mirror to say, right, we don't have this big dog anymore. We don't have this, you know, two-time NBA Finals MVP, but we have each other. And I think that was a little bit of a chip on their shoulder to say, hey, NBA, we're still going to be one of the top teams in the league without our best player. Masai Ujiri has constructed a fantastic a basketball team that can beat you in so many ways, but the hallmark of this team is their defensive system and how they have just a knack of getting the loose balls, creating turnovers, uh, you know, getting rebounds, uh, playing, you know, with each other. It's just a, 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 as I said, a well-oiled machine that there's not many, you know, uh, uh, there's not many uh, weak spots in this lineup. So uh, they're going to be a handful, whether it's Brooklyn or any other team that comes out of in the next round. Speaking of machines, Rick, I mean, Kawhi Leonard was a machine. He just was emotionless. I mean, we used to joke about it when he'd do his press conferences <laughs> and his ridiculous laugh. And, you know, he he definitely played it up, but he, he had incredible focus. Uh, clearly, this is a guy who wants to do his best, always gets on the court wanting to do his best. How disappointing is it this year for him uh, joining the Clippers? I, I understand he wanted to be back in L.A., but you got to wonder if he's kicking himself for leaving the Raptors. Well, I think he's happy, number one. You know, the the Clippers have a really good shot at winning the title, too. I mean, they they have a talented roster. Uh, They're in a dogged battle with uh, the L.A. Lakers, uh, you know, for probably the the team that's going to come out of the Western Conference. But he's got to be looking at this Toronto team to be thinking, wow, they're they're even better without me. I, I can't imagine what we'd look like if I was with the team. Uh, hmm. He's still, you know, going through the load management this season. Um, that would probably have been the case if he was still with Toronto. They would have had a very similar-looking team with uh, him in the lineup. So, yeah, there might be some regret, and especially there would be if the Raptors go all the way and win this thing again, which, I, you know, I can't put past them. They're that good of a team. Um, who knows? Uh, I think the dream final, at least I think for Raptors fans, would be Toronto versus the Clippers. That would be something to mm-hmm. see. Oh, man, would it ever. I've got some audio of uh, Lowry, and he's talking about the crowd. Have a listen. We just miss the fans in general. Um, and our, our fans in Toronto are the best fans in the NBA. I just believe that. So that that alone um, will be missed in Jurassic Park. All that, the atmosphere, the electricity around the city, the buzz around the city, that's definitely going to be missed. Um, and we wish we could have it. But, you know, I think we're playing hard out here for our fans. And I, I think you guys have seen how um, – intense all these games in, in, in here have been. So I think the playoffs is just going to be another level that, um, you know, you got to understand that you have to take your game to, to to try to get to that point of, you know, winning the championship. 
Rick, I was mentioning earlier on in the program how absurd I, th- I think it is when sports fans say, you know, we won or we lost because it's like, well, you didn't have anything to do with it. But <laughs> in the case of the Raptors, I think I rethought that position um, because I think the crowd did have a lot to do with it. At least we all felt very invested last year. How important is that crowd or is Lowry just simply paying respects to fans? I think the crowd is important. You know, home field advantage means something, and that's why teams want to have the best record to get that home court advantage because not only do they get to sleep in their own beds at night and, you know, play uh, on their home court, but it's in front of their fans and the atmosphere and the momentum and the energy they feed off from fans, I think, you know, helps them in many situations. It's not the be all and end all. We're certainly seeing it in the bubble. There's no fans around, there's no crowd noise. Uh, to feed off of or gain that momentum off of. And I think, you know, the competitors that they are, these pro athletes, yes, they're making millions of dollars, but they still want to win. They still want to be the champions, whether you're on the Brooklyn Nets or the Toronto Raptors or the Milwaukee Bucks, what have you. Um, Not having the fans has been a little awkward as a fan watching the game. But I think for the players, they're, they're used to it by now. I mean, they're, they're five, six weeks into this bubble format. Uh, they know, you know what the deal is. They're, they're you know, competing as hard as they can. Uh, and, you know, the fact of the matter is every team is on that same playing field. There are no fans, so no teams can feed off that energy. But, yeah, I, I, I've always subscribed to the notion that home field advantage means a lot because the fans deliver that kind of extra oomph to the players in good times and in bad. What are you watching for this afternoon in that basketball bubble? I just want to see the Raps start off well, and I think they will. I mean, they're they're a team that can score, not necessarily at will, but they have so many weapons. I think it's just going to be difficult for Brooklyn to defend what Toronto can do, and I don't think Brooklyn is going to be able to score enough points on Toronto's defense. So I'm just going to see – I think we're just going to see what we have, a a deep team with everyone involved, a great bench, uh, a, a cleanly coached game from Nick Nurse, um, uh, you know, a little emotion because it is playoff time. I'm, I'm going to expect some of that playoff energy uh, and that's in some of that hunger. We'll see that on the players' faces. Uh, and I'm expecting a Raptors win. In fact, you know, Toronto has played New Jersey twice, New Jersey, Brooklyn slash New Jersey twice in their NBA playoff history. And both times the Nets have beaten the Raptors. This time around, I not only expect the Raps to win, but I also expect Toronto to complete their first ever series sweep. So hopefully those two things come to fruition. Rick, I'd love to let you go. I hope I'm not keeping you too long, but brevity is not my strong point, as we all know. Uh, so I really want to touch on this very quickly. I, if we could, the CFL's Board of Governors are going to meet today, and they're going to determine the fate of the 2020 season. The league uh, were turned down by the feds, not a once, but twice. Um, they were asking for, I believe it was an interest-free loan of $30 million, and the government said, uh, no, I said, good day, sir. What do you think is going to happen to the 2020 season? Can the CFL go ahead with this at all? Uh, It it can't. Uh, You know, Commissioner Randy Ambrosi said from the start that without government money, this season was not going to fly. And it it just can't unless, you know, the the league's nine ownership groups come together and say, all right, we're just going to dive into our reserves and our resources and pay for this bubble format in Winnipeg. But I don't see it happening. Uh, You know, without a season, each team is going to lose about eight to ten million dollars uh, as a whole. The league's going to lose upwards of eighty million. Um, it, it, it's just not going to happen. The CFL is going to come out either sometime today or sometime in, in the next twenty-four hours to say, "Listen, we tried our best. We had our hand out. We wanted to work with the government. We wanted to work with the CFL Players Association. Could not come to an agreement with either side." So. We're going to call it a year, and we'll see you in 2021. And, and this might be a blessing in disguise because 
if the league is going to lose upwards of 80 million, you know, about 10 million per team, and they have to, you know, pile on an extra 30 million dollars from a federal government loan, well, now they're, you know, 110, 115 million dollars in the hole. How are they going to pay that back? Uh, I think it's mm-hmm. best to, you know, push the eject button and look forward to 2021, and hopefully, a second wave isn't as, you know, devastating as the first. Rick, it's always a pleasure having you on the show, um, not only taking up your time, because I know you're a busy man at 900 CHML, but also just, uh, you know, getting your insight on this, because uh, admittedly, sports is not really my bag. Hey, it's always a pleasure. Go Raps, go, and uh, hopefully they can take it all the way. It'll be fun to watch. Yeah, that said, by the way, I'm watching the game today. I am going to be watching the game. Tip-off is at 4 o'clock, Raptors and the Nets. Well, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Join us tomorrow and every weekday from 9 a.m. to noon for the Kelly Cutrera Show, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.